Hey, good evening, Redemption. It's always it's good to be with you all. Um, this is your first time here. My name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, just a brief about Redemption Church. We are one church, multiple congregations. Currently, you're here with us in Tempe. Uh, we believe that all of life is all for Jesus, so our mission is simple. We seek to make disciples under that truth. And so uh, the best way that we do that is through what we call redemption communities. Redemption communities are a smaller gathering of people who meet in various times and places throughout the city to encourage one another with God's word, breaking bread with one another, and meeting new people. Um, this is something that you're interested in, or if you have any questions regarding Redemption Church, best thing that you can do is take that information card in the seat in front of you. There should be a pen there as well. Fill out any questions you have, mark um, the circle for redemption communities, and later during our time of response after the sermon, you have an opportunity to drop that off in the offering boxes, which are located back by the doors. Uh, a couple announcements I have. One, we have First Wednesdays coming up in September. Uh, if you're not familiar with First Wednesdays, First Wednesdays is our opportunity to be with one another, to hang out, to eat, and have a discussion over a topic that is relevant to culture. And so First Wednesday in September will be on politics. And so we're flying in Jim Skillen from Washington, D.C. If you're not familiar with Jim Skillen, um, he started the P Center for Public Justice in Washington, D.C., which is essentially a Christian think, think tank for polis, public policy. And so he's going to come and talk about politics and um, answer some questions. And so about 35 to 45 minutes, he'll speak, and then we'll open up for Q&A. Now, here's what I, need, I want you guys to know, because I know that we're known for showing up on time. Um, that is going to start at 6.30, and it's going to run to 8.30. A lot of people are going to be there, so get there early. Um, make sure you get enough food and sit around a table and meet some people, and we're going to have a great time. So that's the first Wednesday of September. Um, the week following that, guys, this is for you. We are having a redemption-wide, so Redemption Church, all our congregations, men's conference. One night at September 11th. It's a Tuesday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Let me say that again. That's September 11th. It's a Tuesday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. at the Gilbert campus. And so, again, we need to get there early. Here's the best part about this conference. The speaker, great guy coming in from Tennessee. Not the best part. Best part, it's free. All right? So we want all of the guys to go. Sorry, girls, just for guys. If you know a guy that should go, recommend it. If you have a guy who's pursuing you, he should go. If you know a guy, you know the deal. If you live next to a guy, if you've seen a guy, send him. Right? And so we want to make sure that we're all there. So redemption community leaders, make sure to bring all your guys there. And so we can pack it out and have a good representation of Tempe uh, amongst all the other congregations. Um, so work out, do some push-ups, let them know we represent strong. All right? September 11th. All right. If you have your Bibles, why don't you guys meet me in Luke chapter 23. Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and please keep it raised really high. Uh, so one of the guys will be able to get you a copy of God's word. If you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy that we give to you so that you can have it and you can have God's word with you throughout the week to encourage you and to grow an understanding of the gospel. Uh, as you turn to Luke chapter 23, uh, we are in the last week of our series, Four G's. Um, we, we, we decided to go through this series for four weeks um, to look at four truths about God that those truths, when applied to the waters of our life, would help us grow, would help us change internally. Um, in essence, giving us tools as a body to disciple ourselves and those around us, to preach the truth of the gospel to ourselves and those around us. And so week one, we looked at God is great, and so we don't have to be in control. 
And then following that, we looked at God is glorious, and so we don't have to fear others. And then last week, we looked at God is good, and so we don't have to look elsewhere. And then tonight, we'll conclude with God is gracious, and so we don't have to prove ourselves. Um, So the text that we have tonight uh, is a familiar story. If you've been around church for some time, if you haven't, um, this story, we're going to read through it, and so you'll get an understanding of it. We're going to use this story as a launch pad to talk about God's grace. Um, one of the things as a pastor that I get to do is preach to you all and to pastor you. And so this sermon is not just a, a, a true sermon, though it is, but it's a true sermon for us in Tempe. Because a lot of the counseling, a lot of the meetings that I've been doing has been um, centered around the idea that as a church, we still struggle with two things. One, we're struggling with sin. That's just a Christian. And the understanding of God's grace and how it applies to our life. And so I think this G uh, is relevant for us to understand that God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. And so we're going to look at tonight, we're going to walk through this text, and four truths about God's grace that we need to know and apply to our lives. But before we do that, would you guys join me in bowing your head and um, asking God by the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word and our time for tonight. Father, we thank you so much that we can come to your scripture. We thank you that your word does not return void. And as God, as we look at your grace a concept, an idea, a truth that we teach. Many churches are named after. Many people in this room have that name. And yet as Christians, Father, we we have a hard time understanding it. For those in this room, Lord, that do not believe upon your son, Jesus, Lord, have a hard time understanding it. And so I ask that you remove me, Father, that we may see Jesus. ask that your spirit would come down upon us and fill this room, that we would have a sense of your presence, that we would understand in our battle and struggle with sin, Lord, that we are not left to ourselves, but you are moving in us and through us by the power of the gospel applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the, the, the thought that God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves, the ideal of God's grace is something that's hard for us to fathom. Um, especially in our culture, because there's no environment and there's no context of which we live in that works out of grace. In fact, we are a performance-driven culture. Everything that we do from when we're kids all the way till we die is about performance. When you're a kid and you go to school, you have to get good grades or you try to get good grades, right? Um, They don't give you A's, B's, and C's when you're young. They give you satisfactory if you were me, right? I hated report card days because as soon as I came home, my mom would have that report card. It was pink um, and, and she would be looking at me and it was just S, S, S. But I got a very good in one subject. You know what that is? Physical education, all right? <laughs> Loved it. I knew it. I did a PhD in that, right? Um, we, we have since we're performing school and not only in school and you know, it's good to perform in school. Um, if we didn't have performance in school, I mean, can you imagine grace in school? Hey, I know you didn't show up for the test, but eh, we'll give you an A, right? That doesn't work like that. Um, it happens. Performance is what we have and what we experience in our jobs. We have performance reviews because we want to do good and we want our, um, our bosses, our employers to speak to us well. If you do well in work, you'll get a raise. You probably won't get a raise. But if you do well in work, at least they'll like you better. Um, it's like that performance in relationships. To a degree, you have to perform. You have to show that you're worthy of someone's respect and honor. One of the things that was told to me, and I tell the people, especially in relationships, uh, when you, and premarital couples, is don't expect when you get married for your, your spouse to trust you. And, and usually I look at the guy and I go, hey, don't expect for her to trust you. I mean, don't even expect for her to like you. Now, biblically, <laughs> she's got to love you. All that other stuff, you're going to be working on that. And some of you guys who are married are going like this. You're like, yes, man, she must have shot you a text this morning, huh? Um, no. 
I just know how it is, right? <laughs> there's, there's a sense where trust is something that's hard to earn. And, and you're, you're performing to a degree to saying to your wife or to your spouse or to your roommate or to your friend, I'm worthy of your trust. And it's hard to get. And it's so easy to lose. And so there is a deal of performance. It happens in work. It happens even um, in anything that's extracurricular, whether it be to try out for the band. Um, there are cuts. Um, there are cuts in sports. The, the joke around here, and I love telling the story, is, as everyone thinks that I'm really athletic. Um, I'm, I was able to play football once, and I can play a little bit of basketball. After that, that's it. I don't know how to play. I don't know how to bowl. I don't put my fingers in the hole. I just throw the ball down there and go, right? Um, w- this is true story. Still to this day, I think I was the fastest player ever to be cut from my high school baseball team. Fast, 26 minutes, done, right? No one can beat that. And what what happened was there was a guy in my hometown who convinced me that I should try out for the baseball team. Now, here's the problem. I've never played baseball. Little league, nothing. At best, I played like MLB on Nintendo, and that was it, right? And so I show up, and um, um, I don't know anything about baseball etiquette. I walk up. I got, I, got baggy, I got baggy sweatpants on. I got a backwards hat. My coach didn't like that. And then we started a scrimmage. And in the scrimmage, the coach says, okay, what position do you normally play? And I said, well, coach, I've never played. So he put me out in, in out center field, right? And so I'm out there praying, Lord, don't let this ball come my way. It came my way, all right? And so when the ball came to me, there, there, there was a thing in baseball where it's called a curl hop where you're supposed to get up and throw it, right? Well, I didn't know that then. So the ball came and it rolled out to me. I picked it up and it's half a second thought, what do I do? So all I knew was football. So I dropped back like a quarterback and then threw it in, right? I hear girls laughing. That's even worse. But, but it got worse. And so then it was my turn to bat. And so uh, fortunately, by God's grace, I hit the ball, got the first base, took my helmet off, threw it to the dugout. And my coach looks at me, he goes, what are you doing? I'm going to take my helmet off. He goes, why? I'm like, oh, I thought you just used a helmet so the ball wouldn't hit you in the head when you were, when you were batting. He goes, come here. And I walked over there and he looked at the track, the track field and he says, hey, um, I think the track team needs you. You're done here, right? I couldn't perform. Yeah, don't say, ah, uh, it was right. <laughs> don't feel, I'm, I'm okay. There, there, there's a sense that we're performing in everything. And I'm convinced that our performance with people at work, at school, with our friends, with our spouses is not nearly as big as we feel like we have to perform before God. There there are so many in our congregation when I talk to them, this this idea that they they know that they're accepted by God. They, They hear that we're teaching grace, God's undeserved gift of giving himself to us in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ. But there's a sense that you feel like you need to do something especially when it comes around sin and besetting sin, sins that you feel like you keep doing over and over and over again, that you feel like there's something I must be able to do to know that I'm right before God. And yet the truth that we come to today is God is gracious. You don't have to prove yourself, not just horizontally to others, but you don't have to prove yourself to God. Just, just imagine what your life would look like individually. Imagine what your family, imagine what your household would look like. Imagine what our city would look like if Christians understood the understanding of grace, the teaching of grace, that we would still have to perform at work and still have to perform in other places, but the pressure of that would not break us. And we would understand we would never have to perform vertically before God because he's done that fully through his son, Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, as we look at this story, this is a story of grace, and launching from there, again, four things we'll see about grace. So why don't you join me in Luke chapter 30, uh, 23, verses 32, as we walk through here. Two others 
who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the palace that is called, the place that is called Skull, the Skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now here's what's happening. Jesus right now was fulfilling um, Isaiah 53 verse 12. In Isaiah 53 verse 12, it talks about how Jesus himself, this Messiah, will be crucified amongst criminals, amongst sinners. We have three people in this story. We have two that are deserving of death because they're criminals and one that's not. That's Jesus. That's the picture that we have. A little context about Luke. Um, Luke, the gospel of Luke, my favorite gospel in all, all the four accounts. Mainly because Luke himself shows Jesus praying more. We see the role of the Holy Spirit more. We see Jesus um, looking out, reaching out to people who are not like him culturally, ethnically, racially, not like him. Um, Luke is a doctor, and so what we know about Luke, too, is that Luke is concerned with illnesses. We see Jesus healing people. We see Jesus constantly displaying acts of grace towards people who did not deserve it. And even now, we see Jesus on the cross, Jesus at uh, the point of crucifixion, that he's there being crucified with two other people, and the, things that, the words that come out of his mouth is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's not saying that man, you and I, we are not responsible for our sin. He's just saying they don't even understand the magnitude. They don't understand that they are putting God's son to death. Father, forgive them. Jesus is showing us what he teaches us, which is how to love your enemies to the point of sacrificing for them and on their behalf. Continuing in verse 34, and they cast lots to devise his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Here's one guy. One guy looks at Jesus. Um, All three of them are dying at this moment. One guy looks at Jesus and says, if you're the Messiah, if you really are God come to this world, why don't you get off this cross and then why don't you get us off the cross too? Meaning, I don't care about you. I don't want a relationship with you. I really don't even believe that you are the son of God. But if you're able to do some cool things, do it right now. There, there wasn't a sense of an understanding of worship. There wasn't an acknowledgement of, hey, I deserve to be here because I'm a criminal. And this is what our law has for criminals. I knew this. This wasn't a trick. No one, this didn't surprise me that I'm here. I knew what I was doing was wrong. There was no sense of repentance. He wanted to use God. If this was God, okay, give me something. I, I have a friend of mine who I meet with constantly who's not a Christian. And, and, and he went from being an atheist and to a, an agnostic. And so we're working. We'll get there sooner or later, right? I think Buddha's next. And then bam, Jesus got him, right? So I'm, I'm waiting on that. And he, here's what he always says to me. Sometimes I just want to believe in God just in case I'm wrong. Like I want to be able to say I believe in God for the forgiveness of sins just in case I'm wrong. So when I die, I go, whew, like insurance. That, that, that's kind of what this guy wants. That's not a relationship with Jesus. That's not understanding who God is. Meanwhile, the other criminal, again, criminal, he gets it. Verse 40 says this, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, 
I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The second man, sinner, equally as sinner, simple as the other man, understands his position. He acknowledges his sin. There is genuine confession here. There's a plea. He understands that this is the Messiah. He understands he deserves to be where he's at, and Jesus doesn't. He looks at the other man and goes, he rebukes him. Are you kidding me? Don't you fear God? And he looks at Jesus and says, essentially, I am a sinner. I know you're the only way. Will you remember me when you get into your kingdom? And here's Jesus' words again. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That is a picture of God's grace. This man, I don't know how old this man is, but he's probably an adult. He did not live a life that feared God. Um, He did not believe in Jesus his whole life. He didn't grow grow up in church. Um, He didn't get saved at some camp in a mountain one day. He didn't know all the songs. He didn't know the words of the songs. He didn't serve in children's ministry. And at the end of his life, he knows he's going out and he sees Jesus. He confesses his sins and he believes upon Jesus. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. People hate this story. There, There are people who both believe in God and people who do not believe in God who hate this story. They, they hate that ideal of a bed, bedside, I'm dying conversion. And, and, and one of the reasons that people don't like it is a person who may not believe in God, they just look at our Christianity, they look at our biblical teaching and say, are you kidding me? So let me get this right about Christianity. You can live like an absolute idiot, um, not listen to God's word, not do what your holy writing says, and then all of a sudden, at the end of your life, say, I'm a sinner, I believe in Jesus, I trust in him, and you go to heaven? And we're kind of left going, yeah, uh, uh, yeah right? That, 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 I guess the way you put it like that, yeah, right? There's a, there, that, that's the way it is. And so they get that, that makes no sense. That makes no sense, especially because you always know someone that's better than a Christian. They, hear, hear me on this. Sometimes people think that being a Christian means you're going to be the nicest people around. Absolutely not. Some of us are jerks. And I'm not saying we should stay that way. There should be sanctification. We should grow. But you know people who do not believe in Jesus. Some of you are here now, and you're just better people. I'm convinced um, that if my wife were not a Christian, she would still be as nice as she is. I'm not trying to say, Lord, you didn't do anything. I'm just saying she's a natural sweetheart. Me, I needed Jesus, right? That, that something had to come in me. God had to, to shake me up. And, and, and some people don't like that because it, it, we, we are allergic as a culture to grace. Because that guy didn't do anything for it. But then there's Christians, those of us in this room, we hate it too. We call it easy believism. There's no way. Um, this guy didn't get baptized. He didn't show a life of assurance. There was no obedience here. All he did was pray a prayer. And I'm just saying, what if everybody, what if everybody came to their deathbed and they believed in Jesus and all of a sudden they're going to go to heaven? I hope so. I mean, it, it seems that's what the Bible says. There's a sense because the reason why we don't like it is because it challenges our idea of of fairness. Don't get me wrong. Grace in itself is God is just, he's equitable, but not fairness in the way that you and I think fairness. You see, my my mother-in-law, God bless her, the most fair person in the world. She can't help but be fair. One of the the nicest women that I know. Um, No, this was recorded. The second nicest woman I know. My mom is awesome, right? And, And... 
Second nicest woman I know, what she does is she lines up all the grandkids, and whatever she gives to one grandkid, she gives to all of them, no matter the age. She gives one grandkid a car, hopefully. She gives all of them cars, right? There's a sense she can't help but be fair, and we think that it has to be that way to God, too. And so when we hear, we see ourselves, we live these hard lives because most of us think the life of Christianity is just dull abstinence. That God is saying, hey, hold out on fun until you get to heaven, right? That we, we think that the gospel in itself is abstain from everything that would be cool, fun, and exciting. And then when we get to heaven, we're going to sing a lot, right? And we go, oh, oh, right? And, and, and they're, they're, we, we look at that and we look at people's lives like this and we go, that's not fair, here I am, I'm holding my purity, sort of. I'm, 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 trying, I'm trying to walk in the Lord, I'm abstaining. And this guy gets to just do that, and all of a sudden he's a Christian. We don't, we don't like that. It's because we don't understand God's grace. We, we feel like you need to perform, you got to do something. You can't just believe in Jesus. That just can't be it. There's got to be more than that. So that leads us to the four things I want to teach about grace that we need to know. The first thing about grace is God's grace teaches us grace is not fair. Um, we see it in this guy's life. It wasn't fair. The way that we, that we think fairness, it wasn't fair. This guy never went to church. This guy never shared the gospel with anybody. This guy never went through a hard time as a Christian. Um, we, we don't know anything about this man's life other than by faith we'll see him in heaven. And we're going to say, man, how was life on, on, on earth? Man, it, it was terrible. Then I believed in Jesus. How about you? Man... I was doing a wanna, I was learning scripture, I do all these things, and you just got here, right? There, there's a sense where it's not fair. Now, now this, this text teaches that, um, but we have to understand first what grace is. And so hold your, uh, you don't have to hold your place there. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'll give you some time. Ephesians chapter 2, turn to the right. Uh, if you don't know this verse, highlight it. If we gave you the Bible that, um, that you borrowed, even though you may not keep it, highlight it. Th- this is a verse... That you need to know. In fact, grace is essential to understanding biblical Christianity. If we don't get grace, we don't get biblical Christianity. In fact, it is what separates our religion, biblical Christianity, from any other religion. Right? So any other religion essentially says there's a set of things that you have to do. If you accomplish those things, whatever your God or gods may be, say, now you're in. Where biblical Christianity says there are a set of laws that you could not do. So God himself comes and does them on your behalf. And now by faith... Now you're in. That, that's grace. So Ephesians chapter 2. So Galatians, Ephesians, then Philippians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It's Paul's words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Um, here's what Paul says. Why it's not fair. Grace, you've been saved through faith. Is a gift of God. Now let me explain this. Not only is grace a gift, the language here is saying that grace and faith is a gift. And this grace that God gives, his undeserved gift of giving us the forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future, a foreign righteousness that comes in Christ, that we may have eternal life in Christ Jesus only by faith. He's saying this grace, this faith is a gift. You didn't do anything. It's not because of the family you grew up in. It's not the state or the country you grew up in. This has everything to do with God. This has everything to do with God and his love for you. And and grace, by the way, is not just the offer of salvation, but it's also what sustains it. 
It's not just the offer of a relationship with Jesus, but it's also what sustains it. So in essence, it's the beginning of a relationship and it's what carries you in that relationship all the way to glory, all the way to eternity. And it says this is a gift so that no one may boast. It's not fair. Um, This is something that not everybody in this room probably will believe in. All can come by repentance and faith, but not everybody will. Here's what I mean by this. I've shared this story a lot. I'm, I'm not, I never lived a day in my life, I don't know, while I was in college as a Christian. Um, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think that I've ever lived a day in college as a Christian. And I had good friends of mine, friends that I hung out with. I was in a lot of ways the ringleader of my friends. And then God and his sovereign grace decided I wasn't in a church service. I, I, I wasn't at a camp. I, I never knew of a campus ministry. I never knew of crew or young life or university. No, no, no. You know, no disrespect, guys. I just didn't think you guys talked to people like me. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know that they were, they were there, but God saved me. Well, a few years later, I came back to work at ASU. Now as a Christian. Um, I was working as a missions counselor um, at ASU, which a missions counselor sounds really good. Um, all I did was go around to schools and say, come to ASU. wasn't that hard. I said, hey, check your pulse. Get in, right? <laughs> I, I have to do that because I make fun of U of A and... <laughs> It's true. <laughs> so, the, so, so that's all I did. And so I don't know if you've had that experience, if you've had adult conversion where you meet, you see people who you knew in the life that you had before you were a Christian, and a couple of years have gone by, and they see you again, and there's that awkward, hey, is anything new? Uh, no. Right? <laughs> yeah, there's something new. Well, there was a girl that I ran into that was still in school, and um, she was in her sixth year there, my friends, and um, and. And she was walking around and she goes, hey, what are you up to? And I'm like, oh, you know, I work here. I work in this building right here. And uh, we got to talking and talking. And I finally said, hey, how's everybody? How's it, you know, how's things going? And then she, from that question, unraveled and just unloaded on me. I mean, out of nowhere. She goes, what do you, use some language I'm not going to use here. Um, what do you mean um, how, how, how things are going? She goes, you, you, you're the only one whose life's changed. She goes, every single one of us are doing the exact same things that we were doing three years ago when you were with us. Nothing's changed. Our lives are equally as miserable. Um, our lives are just still chasing down the same things. And I hear about your life. Oh, I heard it's great. You're like in church and you're holy and you got like a, a wife who's holy too. And she's kind of mocking me. And then she said this question, what I don't get out of all of our friends, you, you of all people, why did you get the change? And there's, there's one of two ways we can answer that question. We can answer that question in one way and say, well, you know what? I'm I just smarter than you. <laughs> I decided to change my life. And we can answer it in so many different ways, but all, none of those would be biblically true. Um, so we have to answer it in this way, and that is, it's God's grace. It was an undeserved gift. Because the way I try to explain it is me and my friends were all going one way, and like a sniper by the Holy Spirit, God says, not you anymore. Not you anymore. Um, that, that, that's the way it was. And I understood it wasn't fair because she was right. Out of all the people in our circle, I should be the least likely. In fact, this girl was just saying how she was kicking an addiction of drugs. Mind you, um, she never had done drugs until I introduced it to her. So that, 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 that's what I mean. Not fair. And so as a Christian, there should never be in us, never be this ideal of arrogance, um, ideal of boasting because of what we know. 
are boasting of what we have in Christ Jesus. Because the only difference between you and your unbelieving spouse or your unbelieving neighbor or your friend or the friends you used to hang out with is nothing but God's grace. Amen? The first thing we need to know is grace is not fair. If we've received it, we should constantly be worshiping God and thanking God for all that he's done for us in Christ Jesus. The the second thing that we hear about and we need to understand about God's grace is God's grace teaches us that it's okay not to be okay. God's grace teaches us that it's okay not to be okay. And what I mean by that is the ideal of sin. Um, there, there is a thought amongst Christians in this church that as a Christian, that you can't struggle with the same sin. That, that if you're struggling with the same sin, that means something's wrong with you. That if you struggle with the same sin over and over again, um, you may not be a believer. You may not be a Christian. That's the way Satan will use it to turn it around in you. You've been a Christian for a few years now. You've prayed for God to take this away. He hasn't taken it away. And so you think there's something wrong with you. Let me just tell you the truth. One, you're a sinner. And, and there are some things that you will struggle with the rest of your life. Um, when I became a Christian, certain things were easy. Easy not smoking weed anymore. Easy. Um, easy not drinking and getting, easy not getting drunk anymore. Um, easy. So other things, still there. I still struggle with anger. I'm constantly asking the Lord to help me. I still struggle with pride. I'm constantly asking the Lord to help me. Um, it's progressive. God's grace is constantly flowing through us. But the worst thing that we can do is fake it. The first thing, we, the worst thing we can do, and we've been saying this the past three weeks, is, is come into a service and go, it's, I'm good. I'm good. No, you're not. Just be honest. Now, I'm not saying that if I say, how are you doing? And then you just lay out your life story to me. And I'm like, oh, whoa. <laughs> right? Um, there, there, it's, God's grace teaches us that God is with us. That God is constantly with us. That he never leaves us nor forsakes us. God is gracious. We don't have to prove ourselves. But when we sin, we think we do. When we sin, we think we have to prove ourselves. There's something that we feel like we have to do. And, and because this particular sin, it keeps getting us over and over again. And here, here's the way we experience it. Um, the question I would ask you is, how long does it take you to get to the cross after you've sinned? How long? And part of it is we go, well, when I lie, quick. You know, when I steal from my roommate, not as quick. Sexual sin, that takes a while. Um, when, I, when I'm looking at images on the internet, ooh, that takes a long time. When I fell with my girlfriend again, even though we said, we're not going to do this anymore, let's pray together, and then we did it again, man, that takes a long time. Um, part of that, guys, hear me, we don't get God's grace. You see, the scandalous nature of God's grace is you don't have to wait. You see, time is not gracious. God is gracious. Time does not change you internally. God changes us. What we do is we wait to somehow like think that maybe God forgot or maybe God's like, oh, it's been long enough. Now I can forgive you because that's what we do with our parents when we're younger, right? You know, you you do some things, you grow up with your family and then you wait till you're 30 and you go, hey, mom, yeah, by the way, I was in drugs the whole time I was in high school. (laughs) Better now, right? It's like, what can she do now, right? Like, what can she do now? We, 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 We treat God like that. We wait. And, and again, why it's a failure to see grace is um, it, it seems like it's modest, but it's really rebellion. It's unbelief. Because what happens is we try to earn our forgiveness by repenting, by our repentance, meaning we beat ourselves up. I'm so bad. Look how bad I am. Oh, wretched man. You read every single scripture on total depravity and you go, that's me. I'm wicked. And you try to make yourself feel as wicked as possible in order that God would go, enough. I forgive you now. 
Guys, that's, that's just works-based religion. That's you trying to do something so that God will feel sorry for you. What, what you're really saying in that moment is you're flipping the bird at God and saying on the cross, that was not, what you did on the cross was not sufficient for me and my sin. When the truth of the gospel is grace, God's graciousness says you, you, you don't have to prove yourself to God. So no matter how big the sin is, you can come straight to the cross immediately. But you, you, you can say, Lord, I'm a wicked man and though I'm still forgiven in Christ. In fact, it's God's grace that draws you to the cross. You see, see, um, God in himself is not afraid of sin. We are. And there's some texts in scriptures that scares us. Last week, we talked about a few of those texts. A lot of you walked out questioning if you're a Christian, right? In fact, why don't you turn there to, uh, let's look at some more, all right? Turn, turn to Hebrews. So if you're in Ephesians, keep going to the right to Hebrews chapter uh, 10, verse 26. We're going to look at three scriptures of these scary passages, especially if you're struggling in sin and the same sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Keep turning to the right to 1 John chapter 3. If you, especially if you've been struggling with sin or you have been struggling with sin and, and this comes up on your daily reading devotion, um, these, are, these are some scary verses. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 says this, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And if we are struggling with sin, we read those and go, it says that a Christian won't keep sinning. Isn't that what that passage says? First, let me back up. That passage is a warning for Christians. It's a warning to say God's people do not take delight in sinning. God's people do not love their sin. They love their Savior. Um, These passages, the the devil will use, your conscience will use to say, that's you. That's you. You ever had those moments where you question your salvation because of what you've done? Uh, You're looking more at your sin than you are at your Savior. Because the same writer, John himself, in John chapter 1, verse 9, says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, That's not, you can only do that once. Um, God doesn't have a limited amount of grace for you. God doesn't say, hey, you know what? You have five tokens. And if you use it all at once, it's over. That's, that's not the teaching of scripture. Um, he's not saying sin all you want. It doesn't matter. You can just live a life that's licentious. You can do whatever you want. He's saying, no, there are some people as we sin, we go straight to God. God, will you forgive me? In fact, it's grace that leads us there because we know we're already forgiven. And then God here says, listen, because I'm just, I will forgive you. I remember listening to one writer say, as scary as it sounds, God will be unjust to not forgive his children. 
Because he's already paid the price. He's already paid for all of their sins, past, present, and future, in Christ Jesus. He's already dealt with it. On the cross, when Jesus says, it is finished, he meant, it is finished, amen? So so, so God's grace teaches us, it's okay not to be okay. We just got to grow. See, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see that Jesus, um, uh, Jesus was interested in broken sinners. It, it was broken sinners that Jesus was drawn to. In fact, grace necessitates sin. I'm not saying go and invent sin so you can go, I'm going to sin more so I can understand God's grace. It's like, no, all you have to do is just be a human. You're going to sin and you understand God's grace that he's forgiven you in Christ Jesus. The third thing we need to understand about grace is um, failure is not fatal. Um, I'm going to paraphrase this. Luke chapter 15, uh, failure is not fatal. It's, it's a famous story of the prodigal, the prodigal son. Um, this story uh, is about a man and his two sons. He's got an older son and he's got a younger son. We're going to focus on the younger son. Um, in this story, this son fails miserably. He goes to his father and he says, hey, can I get my inheritance? Which in that culture in itself was an offense because to ask for the inheritance was essentially saying, hey, dad, um, I wish you were dead and I had all your money right? I don't really care about you just giving your money. And the dad goes, okay, well here, have the money and do as you please. And so the son goes away to some horrible city, some God-wrenching city of contextualization. He moves to Tucson for, for a moment of time. And life was miserable. He moves to a bad city, right? Um, he moves to a city there and he spends all this money. He uses it on, on, on good drink and women and he has a great time. He spends it all. And now he finds himself with pigs and he's about to eat the pig food. And he goes, wait a minute, my dad is rich. And even though my dad probably doesn't love me anymore, even though I've already sinned against my dad, even though I've made a major mistake, maybe if I go back to him, he'll let me just be one of his slaves. Maybe I could just eat off the floor. That's better than this. And so he's walking home, probably um, rehearsing in his mind how he's going to say, how he's going to, what he's going to say, Lord, uh, God, I'm, uh, uh, Father, I'm sorry. Um, um, and he's just rehearsing. Meanwhile, um, the father, who is a great father, a father who shows love, who's a good father, it, 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 it shows that every day he's walking out there hoping, it's today the day my son comes back. Nope. Next day. It's today the day my son comes back. It's today the day constantly because he is ready to show his love for his son. No matter what his son has done, he's ready to lavish his love upon his son. And once he sees the son, he begins to run, which in that culture, men did not run. He, he lifts up his robe and he starts running towards his son. And before his son could ever say, I'm sorry, before his son could ever say, I'm going to get my life right, before his son could ever say anything, it says the father puts his arms around him. He puts a robe around his back. He puts a ring on his finger, which was a, a sign, a symbol to say, you belong to this family and nothing that you can do could ever change that. That, that is a picture of God's grace. That no matter what we've done, and some of us, we've done some really bad things. Um, I'm not saying that there's not consequences. Some of the things you, you, you've done or you will do, there's going to be consequences. You could lose your marriage. You could lose your job. You can lose your friends. You can go to jail. However, you will never lose your salvation in Christ Jesus. That, that is the scandalous nature of grace. And you never have to prove yourself. Before you can even get the words out of your mouth, God has already lavished his love upon you. In fact, theologically, God has done that even before you were born. God is never going to lose his children. Never, ever. 
That's what the Bible teaches us. A, a good friend of mine and somewhat of a mentor tells this story, I think, better than I can ever tell it. Because he says, at the end of this story, when the son comes back and he gets a robe and he gets a ring and it's great and they have a party for him and everyone's excited, he goes, if it were a movie, it would be great. The movie would end and the credits would grow up. He goes, but when it's applied to our lives, we would understand that there's a sequel to that movie. And the sequel to that movie is the son who runs off again. And then he comes back. And the father puts a robe around him and puts a ring on his finger. And then he runs away again. And he runs away again. And he runs away again, and he runs away again, and he runs away again, and again, and again, and again. And every single time, the father is equally as excited to run to him and put a robe around him and a ring on his finger. He goes, that is an accurate display of God's grace. Amen? That is the truth of Scripture. That, that failure is not fatal. In fact, it would be like our God to use our failures in order to minister to other people. Um, it would be just like our God because he says in Romans chapter 8 that he works all things, all things out for the good for those who love him. Um, it'd be just like him to use it to minister to other people. The last thing about God's grace that we need to understand is that God's grace teaches us that there's nothing that we have to do to earn God's favor and there's nothing we have to do to sustain it. Nothing that we have to do to earn God's favor and nothing that we have to do to sustain it. Uh, to sustain it. Here's what I mean. Friends of mine who have adopted kids and friends of mine who have been adopted, they talk about their experience as, as children and as adopted children and how growing up there's still that sense of, does this man, does this woman love me? And there's, a, there's that thought in the back of their head because of something that they've done or something that has happened to them. They're just, just, just wondering, when is the day that they're going to come and go, I'm done with you? I wonder sometimes if we don't think that way about God. That, that, that somehow that, that we've done so many things, so many times that God's going, you know what? Let's sit down and let's talk. I think we're at the part ways in this relationship, right? And, and mainly the way it comes up to me um, from you all is I understand um, that God has forgiven all of my sins before I was a Christian. I understand that he's forgiven me all the things that I did before I was a Christian. But what about the things that I do when I know better? I feel like I didn't know any better then, so I get a pass, but now I know better. I understand God's word. I understand God's grace. But yet, what about now? Um, how, does, how does his grace speak to me now? I feel like I need to do something. You ever had that, that, those moments where you do something that you shouldn't have done last night, and the next morning you go, uh-oh, right? Um, um, you're, you're doing something. You go, I need to do something. I got to read a Bible verse. I got to say a prayer. I got to listen to a song. I got to, I got to email my pastor. By the way, when I get emails at three in the morning, I go, uh huh. They done done bad, right? They, 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 what, what I feel like I need to do something in that moment because God is mad at me. There's this picture that we have before I was a Christian. I get it, but I sin as a Christian over and over again. What, what, what do I do? I'm not here. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so if you're at John, just turn to the left. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. To understand the gospel, to understand God's grace, that his grace not only initiates the conversation, but his grace also sustains the conversation. We have to understand what Paul is teaching here. That it is God's work in our life from the beginning of our conversion all the way to we're with him in glory. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, here's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that in the gospel, God's grace is that Jesus becomes a substitute for us. And he becomes two-part, um, double substitute. And so we sing, we sing the song, um, um, Rock of Ages, Clep for Me. We, we sing that song a lot, a lot here. And it says, be for sin a double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Here, here's, here's what that, that song, excuse me, that song comes from. Paul is saying, Jesus, who knew no sin. Not that he just didn't know sin. Not that he didn't know sinners. Um, not that he was only um, sinless, but he was impeccable. Meaning he was incapable of sinning. That he who knew sin, he became sin. Um, what that means is, he took upon the sin of every single person who would ever place their faith in Jesus. Um, the language there, theologically, is called imputation. Um, imputation means to be treated as if, meaning you put something on your record. So what Jesus, though he was holy, um, though he was righteous, says, let me take every single person who would ever believe in me, and let me take all of what is due their way, and looking at God, the just judge, and says, treat me as they deserve. And so it becomes a death substitute. And on the cross, he dies for our sins. And he dies for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Hear me. Past, present, and future. Not just to the point of conversion. Meaning stuff that you will do tomorrow. Stuff that you will do later. Um, sins, no matter how big they may be. Jesus already died for them. You're already forgiven. He's a death substitute. Now, most of us, to some degree, get that. We get that Jesus died for us. But we come to this point of saying, but yes, but the Bible says I got to be righteous. And the Bible says I got to be holy. And the Bible, I know God wants us not only to break the law, but he also wants to obey him. And, and I just feel like I keep failing. How does God look at me now? I mean, I know I'm forgiven, but what happens? How does God look at me now? And that's the second point of what Paul is explaining here in 2 Corinthians. Not, not only did he become sin who knew no sin, but it says that so that we might become the righteousness of God. This righteousness that Paul is talking about is a foreign righteousness or a passive righteousness. And the same way that, again, that word again, that Christ um, imputed or received the penalty of our sins, that he was treated as if he had done the sins that we did, um, that he had committed. Now we are treated as if we had lived the righteous life that he lived. Let me try to break this down a little bit more. If all Christ did was die on the cross for us, that's all he did, which is very, very good. And he forgave us past, present, and future of our sins. That still does not guarantee us eternal life. I know you're saying, wait, this sounds like heresy right now. Give me some time. Because not only was God concerned with law breaking, but God was also concerned with law obeying. And the Bible lets us know that no one is righteous, no, not one. So though we were forgiven of sins, Jesus, God, is looking for righteous life of which you and I still cannot live. So in essence, if all Jesus did was die on the cross, we would be in the same position that Adam and Eve were in, which is a position of probation. And if you understand probation, some of you do. <laughs> um, if, you, if you understand probation, probation means you're free, you're out, but if you do something, you're back in. You're back in. And, and, and so if Adam and Eve would have obeyed everything that God said, they would have had eternal life. There would have been a sense of righteousness. And so now if only, listen, if only God did in Christ was die on the cross, we would have to be righteous of which we have none. And so Paul says, but, the, but we now have a righteous. 
righteousness. So Jesus not only becomes our death substitute, but becomes our life substitute. It's why we say the cliche, he lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't and died the death that we should have died, but we don't have to. That he becomes our righteousness, that he becomes our holiness, that he becomes our sanctification, that he becomes our wisdom. All the things that we need to stand before God for all eternity, Jesus becomes those things. And so what that means is, if this is your life and your name's on the cover here and everything that you've ever done, everything that you're doing, everything that you will do, God looks at it and goes, huh, there's some pretty good things in here. But you know what? There's at least one speck. So I cannot accept it. And so what Jesus does by grace is he comes and he covers it with ultimately his righteousness. And so now when God sees us, not only does he sees us as he sees Jesus, but he treats us as we are his sons and daughters. That he doesn't see our failures. The Bible says that, that he doesn't remember our sins. He, he spreads as far as part as the east is from the west. Now hear me, when, it says the, when the Bible says he doesn't remember our sins, it's not like God's going, oh, sin, you're a sinner? No, he's not an idiot, right? What, he's, what it's saying is he chooses now because of Christ not to treat us as our sins deserve. So what that means is um, you're free. The gospel gives you freedom to obey the Lord. The question from that goes to why obey? If I understand that it's God's grace that gets me into the kingdom, and now you're saying God's grace sustains me in the kingdom, why would I ever obey? If there's no punishment, why would I obey? If you're saying that, if you're asking yourself the question, the only reason why you ever obeyed in the first place was selfish. It was about you. The only reason why you ever obeyed is because you didn't want God to do something to you. It was never about a love relationship. You were just like the sinner on the cross who said, hey, do something for me. I don't want a relationship for you. And if you do that for me, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. It was never about God. In fact, there's two ways that we obey apart from the gospel, apart from God's grace. One is out of fear, a condemnation. I don't want bad things to happen to me. I don't want God to get me, so I'm going to obey. We teach our kids that. It's the way it is. The other way we do it is for self-love. I want to look good. I want to look good. I want to be known as this. Um, The gospel-centered way, understanding God's grace, that we don't have to earn his favor, that we don't have to prove ourselves, is that we obey now out of gratitude. We obey out of love. We obey because God has gone through infinite costs in Christ Jesus to make us his children. Amen? There's there's one other truth um, about God's grace when it comes to the gospel. Um, That is forgiveness of sins, great. Understanding God's grace, great. To understand that we have a foreign righteousness, that we walk as righteous people because we're accepted as Christ is accepted, great. But even better than that is the picture and the thought of adoption. What, what that means is God is never going to leave us. John, John chapter 10 teaches us that Jesus is a, the good shepherd. No one plucks us out of his hand. Um, Philippians 1 6 says that he who would begin a work will finish it into completion. Um, what we understand with adoption is God does not lose his children. There, there was a, there's a, a series on ESPN called 30 for 30. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, it's a great, it's a great uh, just motion picture of art, music, and sports. Beautiful. Um, and they do, they do stories of, of athletes. And one of the stories that they had was called The Quarterback Project. And it was about a guy who was raised, groomed, I mean conceived to be the best athlete ever. I mean, this dad, this guy's dad was crazy, right? And so he married a woman that had, had particular genes that they had produced certain kids. Kind of how I married my wife because I knew she was athletic. I'm thinking, hey, right? Um, and, and while this kid was, was a baby, they wouldn't give him normal things for teething. They would give him liver. 
um, so he'd get the protein. True story. The father said what he would do to increase his flexibilities. At, at, at two weeks old, he would stretch his hamstrings. Tried it, right? They're just, just trying to, two weeks old, just saying, hey, you know, you're only two weeks, got to be flexible. Um, it was thought that he had never had a burger. He had never had fries. So from Pop Warner, the high school to college, this guy was a machine. He was a stud. Meanwhile, um, the dark side of his life is he was addicted to drugs and heroin and getting trouble, but the whole time trying to please his father. Um, made it to play for America and God's team, the Raiders, um, for a period of, of, of his life. And what? I'm just truth again. Um, play for him. And one of the things he says in, the, in this documentary, he says, um, when I was in Pop Warner, if I'd get nervous, my dad would say, hey, you're not, at least you're not playing the, the, you know, the New York Giants. And then the same thing would happen in, in high school. And the same thing happened in college. At least you're not playing the New York Giants. He goes, my first start in the NFL, uh, I called my dad and said, hey, dad, uh, it's the New York Giants, right? <laughs> And he says, I went into that game. We won that game. It was my first start, and we got the win. And my dad came to me afterwards, and he gave me a hug. And he said, son, I'm proud of you. And he goes, it was in that moment that I knew I was done playing football. I didn't need to play anymore. His entire life, he had been trying to prove himself to his father. And the words that he needed to hear was, son, I'm proud of you. As soon as he understood that, he knew, I don't have to, I don't have to prove myself anymore. I'm done. I can walk away from this. The picture of adoption for us is the exact opposite. We do not live our lives trying to prove ourselves so that God would let us know that he loves us. But what we see in Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 as well as Romans 8 is that God himself gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit testifies that we have not been given a spirit of slavery, but we've been given a spirit of adoption. And it cries out, Abba, Father, essentially saying to his sons and daughters in Christ Jesus, I'm proud of you. Um, This happens before you begin to live your life as a Christian. This happens as you continue to live your life as a Christian. This happens in the deepest, darkest moments of whatever sin that you find yourself in, that God is still not whispering, that God himself, by the Holy Spirit, is crying out, yelling, you're my child, Um, good, well done, my faithful servant. This is my child in whom I'm well pleased, all because of Christ Jesus. God is absolutely gracious. We never have to prove ourselves. We never have to worry about if he's going to run away from us. We never have to worry about what our standing is before him. We know it because our standing before him is that of righteousness, of that of holiness, and, and that of beauty, that of love. The Bible gives us a picture of God dancing around us. We have all we need in Christ Jesus. He's gracious. We never have to prove ourselves. Amen? When we get to understand his grace vertically, now we can be able to understand how to live our lives horizontally. Meaning when we understand all that we have in Christ Jesus, now we don't have to be enslaved to the approval of the people around us. We can now serve them out of gratitude from the Lord. Let's pray.